Hello and welcome to Pound the Rock, an NBA podcast by The Score. I'm your host, William Liu. I'm joined, as always, by Jessica Sharo. What's going on? Joe Wolfon. What up? Uh, games one and two of the NBA Finals have been played. Uh, very, very exciting so far, despite the fact that the Warriors are already up 2 nothing, which is what everyone expected and complained about. Tons of storylines to cover, um, but uh, let's start with the results. The Warriors won game one in overtime, uh, 124 to 114. Obviously, that huge J.R. Smith gaffe affected that one. And then game two, the Warriors, um, you know, they were actually, they didn't really separate too much from the Cavaliers. The Cavaliers sort of mostly stayed in it, but ultimately, Steph Curry, uh, you know, buries the Cavaliers in a uh, avalanche of threes in the fourth quarter, and they win that game 122 to 103. Cash, I'll start with you. Um, what have your impressions of the series been so far in terms of schematically and tactically? Has anything surprised you? And, you know, just what are your feelings after two games? Uh, I don't know how much it surprised me. I think the most surprising thing was maybe how well the Cavs played in mm-hmm. game one. They played basically as perfect a game as they could in a lot of ways. Um, and then, you know, the J.R. Smith happened, and you can almost argue that that in itself is not all that surprising, that you're due for one of those J.R. gaffes once a year. It just happened to come at the worst possible time for Cleveland. So, yeah, schematically, uh, strategically, I don't think there's that many surprises. I guess the one thing I'd say is um, I thought for sure we'd – I don't think we've seen it once, maybe once or twice, but the, the Steph, KD pick and roll. Like, right. you know, they're just absolute death from above pick and roll. Uh, that no one can contain. I thought for sure we'd see it in the finals because they they don't really go to it that often. It's kind right. of their like last resort. Okay, now we respect you. We need to go to this to win this game. And they did I, it in last year's finals. They did, yeah. yeah. And I thought for sure they'd use it kind of down the stretch of game one, and they didn't. And then in game two, they didn't really need to. So if there's one surprise, maybe that we haven't seen that yet because we know they did just pick the Cavs apart with it. True. Yeah, I think maybe the reason that they haven't used that pick and roll that much is because they're just anticipating a switch and it's right. going to lead to them isolating one way or another. So uh, maybe, you know, they've made this concerted effort to get away from that. Um, and that was, you know, their counter to the Rockets switching everything was just to try and get some post mismatches uh, for Durant or get a big guy switched on to Steph uh, and exploit that mismatch. And it slowed down their offense a bit and it got them away from I think what has made them so successful at the offensive end so uh, it it seems like they're making more of an effort to just get guys cutting off the ball um, and you know exploring a little bit more like of of this fluid offensive system that has defined them for so long and uh, I think when they get into into that isolation play like as much as it can be successful because of the great isolation scores that they have uh, it uh, I think at least from a kind of aesthetic perspective um, and maybe as far as like, you know, an emotional one internally, like um, for the team and their identity, uh, it felt like they just um, fell into some kind of a lull, right? In that rocket series. Yeah, like they sure. didn't feel like themselves. It felt like there was maybe some uneasiness yeah. uh, and some discontent within the team. Uh, and I think maybe some of that had to do with the fact that they, um, there was a lot of standing around, which is not what the Warriors have been, right? Like, they are defined by how much they move, how much they pass, how much they cut. And it was weird watching them and kind of jarring watching them look like sort of any other run-of-the-mill offense with one guy isolating on one side of the floor and everybody else is kind of standing around. So, um, Yeah, there's been a lot less of that in the in this series so far. Um, I think part of that difference is, like, the, the Cavs are not nearly as good defensively as the Rockets were. Like, we don't give the Rockets enough credit for how – Discipline they were in switching everything. Um, one of the reasons why the Warriors have been so successful, um, you know, beyond just the fact that they have so much uh, top end talent, is that they're able to get their supporting guys um, easy baskets. Sean Livingston hasn't missed in this series, and a lot of his damage in game two was just him slipping screens. Um, when the and you know the Cavs would try to switch in that initial moment when they have that screen, and he would slip to the rim, and he would have a beat on his his man, and the Warriors would just pass it to him, and he'd get a dunk like. There's just so many possessions like that. The first play of the game, um, JaVale comes inside a screen. He fakes it. He slips, and he gets a dunk, like, right off the top. And that that same action of just, like, burning um, the Cavaliers on these switching um, schemes has just, like, played out for the entire game. Uh, and a lot of that has been Steph. Steph has been phenomenal, and we'll talk about him in a second uh, in more detail. But just overall, the Cavs look disheveled on defense. And yet, at the same time, Cash, like you mentioned – the Cavaliers are playing like as good as they kind of can, right? Like they're 
their offense has been decent. LeBron has obviously been, you know, world class and everything. And, it, and even though some of their supporting guys have been okay, when you look at like, you know, Kevin Love had twenty points in game two. Like, it's it's been it's been there. George Hill kind of even had a, a you know a nice game in game two as well. But it's just it's just ultimately not enough. Yeah, I mean, I think the one thing you can point to is Cleveland's shooting. Uh, obviously, we know they're going to have to hit their threes, especially their open ones, to hang in this series. And they're shooting, what, 20, 29% as from deep as yeah. a team? That's just not going to cut it. Even if, you know, you bring that to like a somewhat respectable 33, 34, 35%, with the amount of attempts that, attempts that they take, like that makes a difference. Mm-hmm. Um, and you just can't keep up with this Warriors team. At least not in a series. Game one was one thing, but to do it four out of seven times or just throughout a series, you can't do it shooting 30% from deep. I think there's something demoralizing about that too, right? Like in the same way that the Warriors hitting just crazy unguardable threes can be demoralizing for the Cavs. It's like they know how slim their margin for error is. So when LeBron is creating these wide open corner threes that aren't going down, I feel like that, that can have the same kind of compounding demoralizing effect. And like, you know, that's just a fact. Like, it, it's hard enough to create good offense against the Warriors' D. Um, like, you just have to be able to make open threes. End of story. You know, like, they can't... A lot of the looks they're getting, I think, are pretty clean looks. Um, their their execution, for the most part, has been pretty good, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, they've run good sets, and, like, LeBron, as you said, has been otherworldly. Like, he, he just makes the right play, seemingly, every single time down the floor. Um They've gotten a lot of good looks out of that uh, elbow action where right. he's just like initiating from up high and guys are cutting um, and he's making those like incredible one-handed like over-the-shoulder passes. Right. Um, you know, he's driving and kicking and, and creating open looks on the perimeter. Uh, it's just about finishing them. And I, I kind of expect them to have more success at home doing mm-hmm. that. That's sort of been how this postseason has gone, not just for them, but like for every team seemingly. Yeah. Um, I, I know... This isn't, you know, the first year where home court advantage has been a thing. It's just been seemingly more obvious to me this year than in any other year how much better teams seem to shoot when they're at home. Um, so I expect them to steal a game in their building, um, mm-hmm. and I expect them to shoot better there. But the thing is, yeah, they, like they just have to hit shots. It sounds simple, but that's what they have to do. And yeah, they they know they're playing against a better team. We all know they're playing against a better team, so. Um, you know, taking that high variance approach like we saw with Houston is kind of what you have to do in order to give yourself a chance and in order for that to succeed, like you just have to make threes. And and I think that that's what makes game one all the more heartbreaking, right? Is what yeah, you just for stressed. sure. They know that they're playing, the team they're playing is superior. And even LeBron, for as great as he is and as confident as he is, that he, he probably knows, or at least, um, yeah, LeBron knows that no one in the league is as good as him. Yeah, uh, on course. an individual basis, but he's also the smartest basketball mind in the game, and definitely knows that um, as a team they're mm-hmm. outgunned. So just how heartbreaking that game one must have been, right? You know, where you know, like even in the Houston Golden State in the West Final, the Rockets didn't have one of those losses, except at the end when they lost it. But like their the first five games of that series, they got blown out when they lost, and then those games that were like there for the taking, they won them, including exactly. game five, which it was the Warriors that kind of like let one go there. Yeah, yeah. So if you want to hang with the Warriors like for a long series, you you have to take any advantage they give you, like mm-hmm. as rare as it is. And and the Cavs just didn't do that in game one and it was in the most dramatic, heartbreaking way possible. And I just don't I don't know how you recover from that right. as the inferior team. Yeah, I feel like even a couple of days later now, um, after J.R. Smith's error, like we're still mentally fixated on that point. There's a new video that emerged uh, of just like raw video of like, um, you know, one of the cameras on the Cavaliers bench, um, <laughs> basically when they were transitioning between regulation and overtime. And you could see in sort of excruciating detail that someone comes over and tells LeBron, yeah, we had one more timeout left. And LeBron just, just becoming completely dejected. Like, just you can almost see, like, the all of his frustrations. I, again, this man had 49 points. At one point, he was shooting 11 of 13 against the best team in the world. Uh, and they really had a chance to win it. All they needed to do was either hit a free throw or J.R. Smith needed to actually just you know, put up a shot and not, you know, run out the shot clock or just like, you know, what this video shows is that look, Lou didn't have his team prepared, right? Like in terms of just like people should know what the time, what the timeout situation is 
regardless of what the score in in the game is but especially at the end of the game it's your job as a coach to let everyone know it's, it's either his job or the job of the assistants to let people know how many timeouts are left and it's also on Ty Lue because like when J.R. Smith started backpedaling, right? I guess, like, everyone was in shock. Like, what is he doing, right? He could have initially passed to LeBron for an open three. That could have won the game. But instead, J.R. Smith dribbles out. But the thing is, once J.R. has made that decision as as Ty Lue, and you see J.R.'s body, like, turn towards the wrong basket, you got to make a timeout there. And it, you got to call timeout. And look, there was 2.1 seconds when J.R. Smith was up above the three-point line. That's more than enough time to drop a play, um, any play, really. Just a, a quick catch and shoot for anybody. You got Corver, you got LeBron, you got you can even give it back to J.R. Smith. I don't know, but like there's a lot of opportunities there, and you know I think when when looking back at this series, depending on how it unfolds, if it does end in five or even maybe four games, we're gonna look back at that that error as one of the you know most devastating errors possible because that could have changed the entire series. Yeah, I have a few thoughts about that. Um, one is. It would have been amazing if the Cavs had managed to steal that game. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think it would have changed the outcome of the series, uh, apart from just making it you know more competitive uh, in the score. You know, but I feel like I feel like it's six games instead of four or five. But I, I okay. Well, I, look, realistically, I just don't think that it, it was changing anything in the big picture. That's my feeling. But I mean, the storylines would have been different, right? Because Kevin Durant was awful in Game One, and, and J.R. Smith really did Kevin Durant a huge favor by you know bailing him out because like. It was JR that ends up getting the rebound over KD, and KD had had a miserable game up to that point. He really got inflated by a couple of friendly calls, too, because otherwise he would have had a really inefficient night. Um, and I feel like the narratives would have been entirely different because KD also struggled a little bit in the Rocket series. Right. No, the narratives would have been different in mm-hmm. the two days leading up to game two. But, but you know, by series end, I think, True. It, you know, it all would have been more or less the same. Um, because, you know, if you're looking at it from the Cavs' perspective and obviously what they're focused on is trying to keep LeBron this summer. You know, I feel like he knows how outgunned they are. And I don't know if stealing that game on the road and making the series um, optically more competitive would Mm -hmm. have been enough to convince them to stick around in a situation that is seeming like increasingly untenable. Um, But back to what you were saying about Ty Lue, like I haven't seen any footage or any angle of that play where the camera is honed in on Lou. I don't know how hard he was trying to call a timeout or if he just kind of froze up and didn't know what to do. Uh, to defend him a bit, we were talking about this off the air, but like in that situation, once JR grabs that rebound, the Warriors defense is scrambled. JR Smith has the ball about five feet from the hoop. LeBron James is wide open at the three point line. You don't want to call a timeout in that situation uh, because your best opportunity to score is to just basically attack the Warriors discombobulated D and again like even once you see JR start dribbling the ball out uh, the Warriors are still scrambled and you know you still have an opportunity to get a high quality look I just think there's not enough time for a coach to react to that situation recognize what's happening which is that you know one one of your players on the floor in the finals game doesn't know what the score is um, you know and and then to like be able to get an official's attention and call a timeout uh, yeah, with enough I, time for it to matter. So that's the talk uh, part because it was against the play was unfolding in front of the Warriors bench. If it was unfolding in front of Ty Lue, it's way easier to grab that like uh, sideline official. Right. I, like I definitely don't think it's as clear cut as like people are making it seem after watching this because you know people watch the video they see how heartbroken and dejected LeBron looks when he mm-hmm. finds out they had the timeout or he confirms that they had one. And I think it's very clear-cut for people to say, well, Ty Lue blew it. So I agree with Joe that it's not that clear-cut. But the one thing I'll say is like, yeah, okay, fine. On the cat, When JR grabs the offensive rebound, obviously, sure, you're not going to call a timeout because right. he can go straight up. And you see LeBron open. I just feel like once he takes a couple dribbles, I think it was very obvious to everyone watching and everyone in that arena yeah. that like J.R. Smith at that point did, know, did not know what the hell he was doing. Yeah. And was going to no man's land. And like Will said, there was still about two seconds on the clock. At that point, I just think... It would have been, yeah, it would have been a tough situation for Lou, but I think, man, you're a head NBA head coach in the finals in like a do or die kind of moment. Like you have to be prepared for that moment, right. just the same way a player has to be prepared for that moment. Mm-hmm. And I just think at that point, when there's like two seconds left, if you can get that timeout, again, in fairness to him, I guess there's no camera on him. We don't know. For all we know, he might have been halfway up the court calling timeout, but. True. It's not like he would have made a big deal of it though in the post game because they exactly. were ripping, everyone was ripping the exactly. officials. He so, would have like, said, "I, you know, I yeah. tried to call it, and the only thing right. he was focused on was the fact that Jr. thought they were ahead." I just think mm-hmm. 
there's a lot of blame to go around, but I think Ty Lue has to shoulder some of it. I, I just think there was a certain point when there's like two seconds left yeah. and JR is running, not even necessarily like running to the corner to get a shirt, just like running away. Yeah. You got to call a timeout, yeah. man, and give your team a chance. I yeah. think, it, look, again, I think you're right to an extent, but I also think it's easy enough for us to say because we've watched that play a hundred times. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, when you're watching it back, it, it kind of slows down for you and you know what happens. So it seems like there's more time than there actually was. But like in real time, I mean, four seconds yeah. to to both read what's going on. Like, you know, again, like if Ty Lue calls a timeout immediately after JR grabs that rebound, I think that's a bad decision. Agreed. And, and we're probably second guessing it and thinking like the Caswood had a way better chance to score than they did, you know, after calling a timeout and basically having to go up against a set defense. Yeah, so, but so I mean, to, it's to, a short clock situation, right? If LeBron had the ball, yeah, yeah, I'm not calling timeout. But if like if it's J.R. Smith and he has his back completely to the basket, even if he toss up the shot right away, he had Kevin Durant right there. Like it was hard. Like I believe J.R. when he said, "Look, man, um, I wasn't gonna throw up a shot over KD." I don't believe J.R. when he said, "Oh, I knew what the score was," because you could literally see on the telecast he was saying, "Oh, my bad, I thought we was tied." Like, no, you weren't. Or sorry, we thought we were ahead. Like, no, you you were not yeah. ahead. Not only that, if but, you're just waiting for somebody to call a timeout, you have the ball. Like you can call a timeout. Yeah. You know, nobody's stopping you from calling a timeout. I think. Look. Um, Again, if you're Ty Lue watching from the sideline, you're seeing that that LeBron was wide open at the three-point line, right? Yeah. And, but and once you're waiting for a kickout pass that never comes. But, like, I'm just saying four seconds is not a lot of time to basically I'm not saying he should have called it at four seconds. He should have called it at two seconds. Yeah. When J.R. Smith had his back completely to the basket. I, like, I, I definitely agree that it's so hard in real time to do it. I just feel like, man, as that's part of the challenge of being an NBA head coach yeah. and you're in the finals and like you uh, that's you, the only thing you should be thinking about as a coach at that yeah. point how many t- like I have a timeout I can affect this game with only this one thing that's the only thing the, ca- the the coach can do in that scenario he has to be thinking that and he I don't know maybe he let's did just, try to call timeout alright let's just like run through all the all the various possibilities here though right George Hill is at the free throw line the game is tied so yeah. the one is like he makes the free throw yeah. and then you know you're assuming like I, I'm pretty sure the Warriors had timeouts left right so yeah Kerr so already said he wanted a timeout regardless you're assuming like the Warriors are going to call a timeout um that's one possibility the other possibility is that the Warriors just like grab the rebound and run it up the court to try and get a last second shot so you're um you know you're wondering like what your defense is going to do mm-hmm. um and another possibility is like you get an offensive rebound and and it's like a putback or I think at the end of the day, like the best outcome there was to have the ball, yeah. have the Warriors' defense not be set, and that is exactly what. Okay, happened. but that's they that's were, an they were abstract the exact situation that they mm-hmm. wanted to be in. You know, that that's what that's in the abstract, right? Like the reason the Cavaliers were ahead was because Lou decided not to call timeout. LeBron got two great scores, like back to back. That's why they had the timeout in the first place because he didn't use it. But that's in like what, during like a more malleable point in the game when there's four seconds left. J.R. Smith gets the ball, and he. He's clearly not passing to LeBron, like, at that point. I mean, obviously, we're talking about a split-second decision, but, like, I don't know. I just It feels like a lot of people have failed LeBron, and that's why I feel like watching this finals, one of the biggest themes is just I feel bad. I feel really bad for LeBron. I don't have a rooting interest one way or the other, but I can recognize that LeBron is the best player in the series, and yet he is getting so much – so much is failing around him that it, it makes me really feel bad for him because – it. He deserves to win. He does deserve to win. He just he just can't win when there's so much happening around him. Yeah, and I think, look, I know LeBron maybe doesn't. He's at a point where he probably doesn't care so much what people think, especially after he got that last. Yeah, he's title untouchable. In that point. Yeah, he is. But you know, we still see what people say or think, and, mm-hmm. and it probably shouldn't matter to us. But just as fans of the game, and as people, at least myself, who like appreciates what LeBron has given this game and like the entertainment value he provides. It's frustrating for me um, who does like respect and appreciate that to see him lose a game like that and then see that whatever, how small the percentage is of people that are actually left that have these feelings, but the guys that will Mm -hmm. look at it and say, well, uh, whoever, insert name here, whether it's Jordan, Magic, whoever you want to put in, wouldn't have lost a finals. You're like actually using it against them that – he's the only one to score 50 in a finals loss. Like, they just don't comprehend the fact that LeBron James is literally, literally probably the only basketball player to ever walk the face of the earth who even has the Cavs in that game. Yeah. When you look at the Warriors, like, peripherals and their numbers, like, the Warriors should have won that game in a blowout. Mm -hmm. And they instead were right there, like, on the precipice of defeat Right. Because LeBron James was that damn good. And he was creating all the plays down the stretch. Everything. Every single play. Everything. Even that George Hill play. What a f- 
great pass. LeBron James see. created, I think it was uh, with his scoring, which was 51, and his assist, he created over 70 points in that game against the, probably the most talented team ever. And his team should have won, yeah. and they didn't. And so just as, you know, as someone with no rooting interest one way or the other from a team perspective, like as a basketball fan, as someone who likes basketball history, it annoys me that that is not going to go down as a win for LeBron James. It's it's kind of like a sports tragedy, man. Yeah, it is. I think anyone who's using LeBron's finals losses or, you know, the fact that he's probably not going to win this series against him at this point does not deserve to be taken seriously yeah. at all. There's an agenda that, there, That's yeah. not a serious NBA opinion, and nobody should care about yeah. that opinion. You know, it shouldn't matter because anyone who actually, you know, understands the game and, and watches it, anybody who cares about it, uh, on even a semi-serious level, knows that what he's doing is special, yeah. and and that even in a loss, we're going to remember it for a really long time. And I, I agree, it is sad, and I do feel bad for LeBron because you can tell how badly he wanted and how much it means to him, and you can tell it's killing him. Right. Just you know, not to be able to get up this mountain and not having enough help uh, to be able to get him there. But in a way, this is kind of the best outcome for him because ah, LeBron the martyr it's it's a little bit about martyrdom but yeah. it's also just about perception and that's true and the fact is even if Kyrie Irving was still on the Cavs and Kevin Love was you know playing to the fullest extent of his potential I don't think the Cavs are winning this series but if LeBron then turns around and goes somewhere somewhere else in the offseason it's like then suddenly he's the bad guy again. He's walking away from a situation in which, um, you know, maybe they had a chance and he just decided to, like, take an easier path. Mm-hmm. Right now, I feel like the perception is, like, people almost want him to leave. Right. You know, because it, it, it is painful just to watch him yeah. putting everything into this series and, like, killing himself to try and get them past the Warriors and not being able to do it and basically knowing that he can't do it, you know? Like, that... Yeah. That video of him in that timeout huddle, he looks so defeated. And rarely do you see LeBron look so defeated while mm-hmm. the game is still going on. I know. That game was tied going into overtime. The series was 0-0 at that point. Yeah. And he's working on a 49-point game at that moment. And, like, yeah. uh, you know, having a chance to win the game in five minutes. And he already looks defeated. And that, that's just not something you see uh, from LeBron very often, if ever. So yeah. you can kind of tell that he knows it. Uh, he knows what he's up against. And he knows how slim his chances are uh for him i think it's like he has proven what he can do and like he's proven like everything that he could possibly have hoped to prove in this series already after two games and i don't think anybody is going to hold it against him if he decides to go elsewhere this offseason i think people might even hold it against him if he decides to stay Dude, no, no, there's, there's no way he's staying, man. Dan Gilbert's going to present him a video and, and it's like, oh, LeBron, you could do this and this, and we can pay you slightly more money and this and that, and your legacy in, in Cleveland and everything like that. And all LeBron's going to be thinking about is J.R. Smith not shooting that ball. <laughs> and he's going to be like, yeah, I'm, I'm leaving. Yeah. Um, LeBron's going to write his departure letter in Comic Sans. That's going to be like the uh, ultimate full circle, like the ultimate full circle uh, LeBron revenge on the Cavs or on Dan Gilbert would be a departure letter in Comic Sans. Yeah, for sure. Um, but I mean, yeah, I mean, look, it, it, it comes down to the supporting cast, right? I mean, like there was so much talk before the finals, um, and you, you could tell it was lip service, but you know, they really went to bad and both the Cavs and the Warriors were like, what are you talking about? There's lots of pl- good players in Cleveland aside from LeBron, you know, he's plenty of help and this and that. Right. And you know, and then you see stats like this after game, uh, after the first two games, um, shout out to Bruce Arthur, um, for tweeting this out. Uh, Sean Livingston, JaVale McGee, uh, you know, J- Jordan Bell and, uh, and, and Kavon Looney are combined 27 of 31 for 55 points. All right? So they've only missed four shots at <laughs> 55 points. That's insane. Meanwhile, Clarkson, JR, and Corver are shooting 9 of 35 for 22 points. The, oh, Jordan Clarkson? The, the story of this file, before it even tipped off, uh-huh. uh, was one of the promotional posters for the said finals, which was the Warriors. I think the poster was Durant, Curry, and maybe Draymond or maybe Clay. The point is the Warrior side of the poster Very impressive. had three like basically transcendent talents and left one all NBA talent off yep. the poster because there was like not room for all of the Warriors top end talent. And the Cavs side of the poster featured Jeff Green and Tristan Thompson. That wasn't like a sarcastic thing 
or like supposed to be a parody. That was like an official NBA promotion for the finals that had Jeff Green and Tristan Thompson on it. A little weirdly disrespectful to Kevin Love, I guess, maybe because his concussion status is yeah, up yeah, in the yeah, air. Yeah, but yeah. like still. They should have just had LeBron on the yes, Cavs side of that poster, yes, right? Like yeah. that, that would have like, been the best, saying, the like best that, way to market the series. That, that kind of told you everything you needed to know about what LeBron was up against in this yeah. series. And again, it just like that makes that game one all the more heartbreaking. Because yeah. I picked Warriors in five coming in. Um, so I agree, I get what Joe's saying in that. Like, I don't think it changes the result of the series. But uh, like at the same time. I, I want to at least see the Warriors sweat too. No, like, exactly. <laughs> and look, I think we all acknowledge yeah. that in a one-game setting, even though the Warriors would be the favorite. But if you go to like a one-game setting. I don't think you're crazy to just go with no. whatever side LeBron James is on. And we, again, we almost saw it in game one itself. So it's like every win yeah. the Cavs could steal early, you're then shrinking the sample size down the line. So if you get game one, well, now it's like you only need to get one of the next three and you're in a best of three now yeah. in game. And then at that point, it's like you shrink that sample size and the smaller that sample size gets of yeah. like games you need, you're going to take LeBron James' yeah. side. So like it's just... It's those little things, you know, that add up where yeah. they they gave themselves an opportunity or at least LeBron gave them an opportunity and they didn't take it. And it's just really sad. And the poster is sad. And the Cavs yeah. supporting cast numbers are sad. Jordan Clarkson Jordan trying Clarkson. to impersonate Yo. an NBA player is sad. It's all – Ty Lue's whole thing is sad right now. Like the guy's obviously dealing with some stuff too. Like – the anxiety stuff, and I'm not trying to make a joke of it. Like it's legit sad. Like just yeah, all of it is really sad. So much of the Cavs is just so sad. Um, a quick word on Jordan Clarkson though. Jordan Clarkson has to be the worst player I've ever seen play in the finals. In terms of just his performance, his play, his performance throughout the playoffs has been tremendously awful. Every time he comes into the game, he shoots like four shots in the second quarter. He makes maybe one of them, at most one of them, and then he is awful on defense. He's he he did not he doesn't pass a LeBron. I've I've never seen any Cavs player not pass a LeBron, except for you know Kyrie Irving is is like a phenomenal all world player. Everything just tremendous player, and you know even he's passing LeBron. But Jordan Clarkson, nah. Not passing. Yeah. I feel like Clarkson's sort of taking it upon himself to be like, I'm the guy who's going to give you a rest, LeBron. Like, let me take this possession. I got this. You know, the way that Kyrie used to, basically, when they would take turns and LeBron could actually get a breather once in a while. And now Clarkson's that dude, and uh, it's, you know, not going quite as well. But I I think it's kind of funny that we're, you know, talking sort of melodramatically about all this Cavs sadness. Like, they're still playing in the finals. You know what I'm That's saying? True. Like, That's true. Maybe it says something about the state of the league uh, or just the state of the Warriors that um, they've they've rendered pretty much every other team in the league this like hapless kind of sad sack. Basically, except for the Rockets, who actually gave them a legitimate fight mm-hmm. and put a scare into them. Yeah. That's the only other team where we haven't come away from this season feeling like, oh, man, this is, like, this is super depressing and super disappointing. Um, it's like the Rockets and the Jazz because the Jazz had this great feel-good season and seemed to be on an upward trajectory. But like for everyone else, it's like, man, how do you how do you recover from this? Where do you go from here? How do you get past this juggernaut? Like, what do you do? Yeah. Um, Jordan Clarkson, by the way, shooting twenty three percent from the field uh, through two games has two turnovers and one assist. Dude, that was his first assist in like thirteen minutes a game. That was his first assist in about two weeks. Yeah, like he didn't have an assist in the Celtics series, right? He had an assist. Um, I think that was I, I right, yeah, that yeah, was yeah. a Haberstroh stat. Yeah. yeah, I remember seeing that that stat. Like the last assist he had was was in Game Four against the, the Raptors, Raptors and it was a blowout. That was a blowout in the yeah. fourth quarter. It was like a thirty point game. So. Yeah, that's wild. He had an assist in a game that wasn't <sighs> even fit for Rodney Hood. So what? Do we... Yo, I mean, look. You know what's an easy way to get an assist is to pass the bottle to LeBron. Um, another storyline on the Warriors side, though. I think the, the the biggest point of intrigue for the Warriors, um, which I guess speaks to how dominant they are, is whether or not Steph Curry will win MVP finally in the finals. Um, you know, Steph's kind of on the verge of winning his third title in four years. I mean, there's not if you look at the list of point guards that won three titles, it's you know, it's magic. That's it, right? Like, and so I mean, I guess whatever you want to call LeBron as well, but. Um, yeah, like you, you want to have a you don't want to have end up in a scenario where his career ends and he doesn't ever win Finals MVP and people are like, well, he won all those you know he won all those titles, but it was a collaborative effort and I guess it is a collaborative effort for sure, but just to cement Steph's you know legacy uh, as a playoff performer and I think 
um, so far, you would have to say Steph is the favorite to win um, Finals MVP. Um, Durant actually had a really nice game too, but game one he really struggled. Um, and, you know, the perception coming into the series was that Durant was taking the Warriors out of the game. And, you know, you, know, you got to also hand it off to Steph. Steph's been amazing. He really does deserve MVP as of, as of right now. I, like, I think it's going to be tough because if it ends in like four or five games, you can't give it to LeBron. I no. still think through two games. I think through two games, LeBron's been the most valuable player in this series. But For yeah, sure. But yeah, uh, exactly. Realistically, they're not going to give it to him if they get yeah. it know, looks swept or lo- losing five or even six. So I'd agree with that. But I do think, look, I think Draymond should get some consideration here. The numbers okay. obviously aren't going to pop off the page. And... Um, you know, and even in some of the notes you prepared here, Will, like you, you make good points. Like aesthetically, the things we see Steph do, right? Like mm-hmm. the crazy shots, the flashy shots, the shimmying, the the high point totals. Those are all going to lend themselves to what probably will be him winning his first Finals MVP. But I really do think Draymond's overall impact through two games has been pretty outstanding. Right. Um, he's like nine, nine, eight, two and one kind of thing, like spread right. out over the five stat. Um. His usual tremendous defense. Plus yeah, minus is yeah. always good for him. I think second only to Durant in on-off right. uh, rating so far in the series. Doing his usual thing of just getting under guy's skin. And just I, lo- I just love watching Draymond play basketball. He's so smart. Um, on both sides of the ball, I don't think he gets enough credit for how committed he is to making sure the Warriors run every single play on every single possession the right way. You see yeah. him out there barking orders, telling guys where to be. Um, and yeah, he just he's just so committed to things running the right way, and I love it. I do think he should get some consideration, but ultimately, I think it's Steph's to lose. Yeah, I think even just talking about you know a body of work like uh, it's it's insane that Steph hasn't won a Finals MVP yet. Yeah, because he hasn't really played poorly in the finals. He hasn't man. played like... poorly, but it's like the fact is he hasn't been like his best self. I guess. I guess in the in the finals that they won. Um, and I don't know. It's still a little bit weird to me that Iggy won that Finals MVP in 2015. Yeah, Steph had like 25, five and six. Yeah, like that's um, good enough. And it sort of felt like I don't know. I mean, Le- LeBron was like made that a six game series somehow uh, through sheer force of will, and then Iguodala like did a good enough job of slowing him down in the last three games of that series after the Cavs had taken a two one lead and probably and. Um, LeBron ended up shooting like something like 25% from three in that series and like 41% from the field. He was not super efficient Mm -hmm. because he didn't have any help. Um, And Iggy did a good job on him. Like it and inserting Iggy into the starting lineup was, you know, kind of a a huge pivot point in helping to swing that series. So there was this sort of like narrative push behind it. Um, And I think there was also probably this idea that like Steph had gotten enough recognition. He won regular season MVP. Right. Everybody knew that he was the beating heart of the team, so it seemed like it didn't matter. And obviously Steph's personality is such that he didn't make a thing of it, right? Like he's right, always right. been a guy who's willing to cede the spotlight to his teammates. That's how Kevin Durant got on the team. That's right. Because if he didn't say, like, come on, the like, we, we can coexist, you know, yeah, they probably sure. don't then, do it. And then obviously they end up losing the 2016 finals, which probably Steph would have won finals mvp that year if mm-hmm. they if they managed to close that out uh although draymond was also pretty damn good oh in that, man yo draymond would have won yeah well actually, i don't cr- know it's hard because he would have got so he got suspended too yeah like, do you remember draymond's game seven performance it was in insane like, yeah epic. He, unbelievable one of the one of the all-time great game seven performances yeah. and he, he had a josh smith 5-3 game the yeah. most uh, just it's unexpected that, but it was, that, that season draymond shot 39 percent from three that is true Suddenly, Most of that was wondering when Luke Walton was coach and let him shoot. Ever since then, like Steve Kerr turned uh, Draymond into a robot, as as right. cemented by that famous shouting match in the OKC series. It's or, weird though, like his uh, his shooting form looks different. He's got this he's weird hitch in his shot. He also he like does anyone notice he like like covers a lot of ground now when he shoots? I was like realizing this for the first two games. Like he watch, jumps forward. Yeah, watch Draymond's like he's always jumped forward, but now it seems like it's like an exaggerated yeah. thing where he's like starting off a foot behind the line, yeah. and when he lands, he's like a foot and a half inside the line. Well, he's he also, got a rotator like, cuff injury. That's that's what his mom oh, said. So maybe right. he's like trying to put extra yeah. legs into it. I don't know. But also, people on Twitter have been saying that he he, he shoots like he has a backpack on, yeah, which yeah. is probably the most accurate I've ever seen. hundred <laughs> percent. He yeah. he like lets go with his guide hand too. I feel like earlier than he used to. Yeah. Um, so it looks more like a one-handed shot. It's just weird. There's like a hitch in it that he didn't used to have. And mm-hmm. uh, defenses totally ignore him out there now. Yeah. So it's a little weird. But anyway, to get back on topic, I think 
it, it's crazy that Steph hasn't won a Finals MVP yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, to me, probably the only guy who can take it from him this year is LeBron. Right. Um, Although Katie's having a not bad series, like he does lead the team and plus minus. Katie's been good. Like, I mean, been, uh, yeah. I just think it's it's Six telling. Assists. It's telling the Warriors looked so much more like the Warriors in yeah. that game two when Steph ran so much more of the offense. In well, game one, a lot of it was still running through KD, right? Uh, and he was uh, ending possessions with a lot of really bad post ups, really far from the basket, mm-hmm. and he was still posting up a bit in game two but he was doing a much better job of like getting to his spots and also the offense was just being orchestrated by Steph way more than it was in game one and it ran smoother as a result and like that's right uh, you know sometimes the simplest answer is the right answer and I think you know putting the ball in the hands of your extremely dynamic uh, point guard who can scramble a defense just by crossing the half court line and threatening to pull up from anywhere on the floor yeah will open things up for everybody else and um, that's that's what happened. Like so much of that, uh, you know, the Warriors slipping screens basically and getting rim runs out of that, yeah. and and open dunks basically was a result of the the fear of Steph pulling up basically and and the threat of somebody setting a high screen for him mm-hmm. got the Cavs all out of whack and that makes it just like so, so easy to open up space whether it's going to the right. rim uh, or flaring up to the three point line. I also think he's done an unbelievable job of moving without the ball. Like, yeah. That's something I don't think he gets enough credit for, but those plays when he passes the ball off and then just will like make one hard cut and sprint to the corner, uh, it, it just makes it so hard to track him because if you're the Cavs' defense, you kind of breathe a sigh of relief when he gives up the ball, but he doesn't actually give you a chance to rest because he's always moving and always looking for an opportunity to get the ball back mm-hmm. and put up a quick trigger three. Yeah, and I think the the big difference is that like when Steph gets going versus when KD gets going is KD's roasting one guy in front of him, and it's like there's nothing you can really do about that. Whereas when Steph gets going, the whole defense is at risk. Like at any point, someone there's a threat of a pass, and there's a threat of people not rotating enough. Whereas KD is just like, okay, wow, he's hitting a whole bunch of rainbow jumpers over whichever guy, and it's it's unstoppable because like there's nothing else you can do other than I, I don't know. There's nothing you can do really about what KD does, right? But like when, when Steph does that, and when Steph causes breakdowns, when he's pushing the tempo, <laughs> the Warriors are playing like that's the Warriors. That's what we know as the Warriors is is, is Steph Curry's Warriors, and it's it's um, for Warriors fans. It must be really nice to see the sort of that style of play translate um, it, onto the bigger stage like this. Because like yeah, I think ultimately Steph really does deserve like he probably deserves one cumulative um, you know MVP. Because like last year he averaged twenty seven, eight, and nine. And it just so happened that KD was, you know, even better with 35 mm-hmm. and hit the biggest shot. Well, so far, Steph has got the biggest shots. Yeah. I look, both of what you're saying, I think, is something we've talked about before. Where it's like the, Durant joining that team is what made them unbeatable, basically, at full strength. Mm-hmm. But it's still what Curry does and how he affects defenses and the threat of him yeah. that makes the Warriors the Warriors, right? Yeah, exactly. Durant's just like the ultimate insurance policy, exactly. right? And it's funny because... He had a more efficient game than Steph in game two. Yeah. Uh, You know, 26 points on, what, 15 shooting possessions? He was great. He he was outstanding. And yet, what do you remember about that game? Yeah. You know what I mean? And, like, this is obviously just, like, a kind of personal thing. But it speaks to, I mean, how do you watch the game of basketball, right? And, like, sometimes it's not just about numbers and efficiency Mm -hmm. and, you know, who is better than who uh, or how you define that it's like what do you remember about yeah. watching that game and I don't know man when when I think about the Warriors I think about Steph yeah and I don't know man like this is getting a little bit personal for me but like I just find watching KD to be a bit of a drag these days like he's it's not super mo- fun to watch like he'll get yeah. his points and he'll do it on solid efficiency and he'll hit some ridiculous shots uh, with guys draped all over him um he's a wonderful player and i you know appreciate and respect his craft but Mm -hmm. like there's nothing super engaging about watching him play and um watching steph is just like a totally different experience and watching him you know like lose the ball 35 feet from the basket at the end of the shot clock and just grab it and turn around with kevin love in his face and nail a ridiculous rainbow dude his feet is his feet are parallel he's pointing towards the sideline (laughs) And he beats the shot clock. I yeah. Mean, so, yeah. I guess my point is, like, if you look at the end of the series and Durant has better numbers on better efficiency and someone wants to come and argue that he deserves to win finals MVP as a result, I'm mm-hmm. not really going to be here for it because yeah, 
Um, Steph, to me, is still the engine that makes this team go. Yeah, for sure. Uh, he's what makes them unique and special. And he just, at a certain point, deserves to be rewarded for that right. uh, in the finals. And even if he's just getting the award as like a lifetime achievement award and not necessarily for what he did in this specific series, I still think he deserves it. Yeah, for sure. Okay, we're going to take a quick break right here. We're going to come back on the other side, and we're going to do Make or Miss with a lot of talk about Brian Colangelo's burner accounts. Welcome back to Pound the Rock. Um, a friendly reminder to please rate, review, and subscribe to the show. Um, you know, the more you do so, the less I'll have to put these promos out there. But, um, you know, in the meantime, yes, please support the show. Okay, make or miss. Uh, it's pretty straightforward. I'm going to ask a question. If you agree, that's a make. Disagree, it's a miss. First one, Brian Colangelo should be fired regardless of whether or not the tweets came from his wife. Make or miss. Uh, I'm going to say it's an easy make. I think, um, look, I think... It's unrealistic to think that people don't share sensitive work information with their significant other, their partners who have family. It does happen. But you're also taking the risk when you do that, that if it somehow gets out because said significant partner is operating three burner accounts to defend you and your callers, like that's that's on you, man. So yeah, I think if it's if it's someone connected to him, which it obviously is, he's yeah. done and, and he should be. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I just think to rebuild the trust between him and the organization after something like that would be virtually impossible and you know if if you are sixers ownership and you know you're looking at joel Embiid, who you expect to be your franchise player for a long time i, I don't know how you can move forward with uh colangelo as a gm given the the stuff that those accounts were saying about Embiid. Slanderous stuff. Um, and, you know, the relationship that Embiid had with Sam Hinkie, frankly. And I, I just think, like, he is probably never going to be able to get there again with Colangelo. I think that bridge has basically been burned. Mm -hmm. um, again, like, even if it's not Colangelo sending those tweets, even if it's his wife, and even if somehow uh, his wife was doing this without his knowledge, the fact is, like that information was coming from somewhere, right? And and I don't see how anybody, else, like, part of that organization uh, mm -hmm. would be able to trust him again after this. Yeah. yeah. I just like to imagine, like, Brian Colangelo and his wife, like, you know, uh, doing some pillow talk, and it's 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 all, like, very, very small um, NBA details, like, oh, Nerlens Noel, uh, he was a terrible in the locker room. And, uh, ja, failed his physical. <laughs> like, yo, yo the trade Joel, fell through. Joel was walking around without his shirt again today. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Man, he was she's on stage like, at a Meek Mill concert. Now I'm going to get killed for it. I mean, come on. And then she's every time he tells her one of these things, she's just like, oh, I have to use the bathroom with my phone. And then, like, just... No, nah, I mean, yeah. yeah. Look, it, it's... I feel... I almost feel bad for Colangelo because, like, this would be... It's not necessarily within his control. I don't think he's telling it's his wife like, to do It's also, like, really this. heartwarming in a real, like... Yeah. In a weird way, right? Like, his wife is out there defending his honor. like Defending his callers, man. Yeah, like, that's beautiful, you know? Like, she's out that's there true. defending she's a real him one. from, you know, attackers from all sides. Yeah. And she's in there in the muck, in the cesspool that is Twitter. Yeah. Uh, defending the man's name. Yeah. And Ride or die in 2018 is making a burner account yeah. for your husband. It's just like a cruel twist of fate that that might be the thing yes, that gets That she's brought them both into the cesspool. Now. Yeah. I mean, I guess we, we don't know for sure that, that it's her operating these burner accounts, so... True. But it seems like that's the case, and yeah, I don't know. It's just it's just cruel irony, right? Like, she's out here defending her man, and, and this is what ends up happening, right? She ends up inadvertently maybe costing him his job. That yeah. sucks. Um, yeah, but I mean, also, this part of Colangelo, too, because, like, there's reports that even when he was in Toronto... Um, you know, as the GM of the Raptors, he was making like real GM accounts to like keep track of what people were saying about him and to push the narrative. And Cash, it, For, you discovered something yeah. on your Twitter account. Oh uh, yeah, one of the one of the five <laughs> burner accounts did reply to me three times on a thread. It was nothing <laughs> negative. Um, it was I had written a piece last year right after the Clippers had been eliminated about how there was actually nothing wrong with the Clippers just keeping the band together and mm -hmm. remaining like a 50 to 55 win team that doesn't actually win a championship. And I criticized Doc Rivers, the executive in the piece about how yeah. Doc, Rivers, Doc Rivers, the executive was hampering Doc Rivers, the coach and the Brian Colangelo burner account or alleged Brian Colangelo burner account replied three times in this thread 
about how like the G the coach GM thing never works. There's only one Pat Riley. Uh, he like ripped Stan Van Gundy at one point too. Just great stuff. But also yes, like I've I've heard for many years, uh, especially when he was in Toronto, that Brian Colangelo reads and like analyzes every single thing written about him, even if it's on some like team blog that you didn't even know gets pub. Like Brian Colangelo's on it. He's probably listening to this right now. Hey, what else is he gonna do, man? Hopefully, uh, if he's listening, hopefully he uh, reviews and five star rates us. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. There we go, Brian. Feel with, free to call your account anytime. Yeah. With, with all of your accounts, like yeah. we get five of the same ratings, <laughs> they all say Sam Hinkie's a fraud. Bring your whole family. <laughs> um, the next one also related to this make or miss. The Sixers should hire David Griffin as a replacement for Colangelo um, in their continued efforts to recruit LeBron. Uh, I think that's a make. Like, first of all. David Griffin did a great job in Cleveland. And um, LeBron loves him. Yeah, they, I think, pretty clearly have a, a solid relationship. Uh, LeBron came out and said, like, he didn't, you know, he wasn't consulted before Griffin was fired. It wasn't what he wanted. Um, and, you know, he was disappointed by it. So I, I don't know how much that would move the needle. I think at the end of the day, you know, Le, there, there are so many different factors that are going to go into that decision for LeBron. Um and I, again, like, yeah, I don't know how much David Griffin being there would move the needle, but you would just be getting a good GM. So right. uh, whether or not it helps you land LeBron, um, it's going to help you in one way or another because he proved himself to be a really shrewd GM who is pretty good at making moves around the margins. And what they have there is already like a pretty strong infrastructure with two foundational building blocks. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I feel like if you want to bring in a guy who's going to be able to make the pieces fit around those guys, there aren't many people around the league who can do a better job of that than David Griffin. Yeah, I think it is an easy make. And if it raises your possibilities of landing LeBron by 0.1%, you do it. Uh, but to play devil's advocate, I'll say miss and say they should just rehire Sam Hinkie and let him finish what he started. I think that'd be the greatest. The greatest. Sam Hinkie takes over immediately, trades yeah. Ben Simmons for two <laughs> second-round picks. All. No, but in all honesty, like, wh- wherever it ends up, I'm so fascinated to see Sam Hinkie in a situation where like he's just building and not you know having to start from the bottom yeah yeah NBA centers would be thrilled man he'd be drafting four of them in a row again um no I also I also think this is a miss though because like if you're the Sixers why don't you just tell LeBron like hey listen you can hire whoever you want as GM all right we'll just keep it open for you we're gonna fire Colangelo and I guess we'll have to take care of the draft somehow because that that comes before free agency although I mean like come on LeBron can give him a phone call like no one will know also, you can talk to Rich Paul. Rich Paul represents Ben Simmons, so it's like a really easy workaround there um, to avoid tampering. Um, but, you know. Yeah, that was something David Griffin said recently uh, on like a radio hit. Um, he sounds saying, like a smart man. He yeah, sounds like, like he knows how to do this. <laughs> that's right. Saying, uh, you know, the Sixers had a leg up because because of Rich Paul's relationship with Ben Simmons, and he thought that might help grease the wheels a little bit, which, I don't know. What about the Lakers with Contavious Caldwell Pope? You know, they, <laughs> they they paid him $18 million yeah. to avoid tampering charges. I think you should just talk publicly and pay the 18 mil through charges because that's way better than paying Contavious Caldwell yeah. Pope. More worth it. Yeah. Well, Dude. I mean, they, they only had him for one year, right? He's, okay, but he's, Mer- a, he's a free agent again. <laughs> that's true. That's true. His biggest um, leverage is like... <laughs> he, he might not be able to leave his house, but... <laughs> <laughs> Yo. <laughs> that, you know, teams can come to him for those free agent pitch meetings. <laughs> He's going to be hosting a pitch meetings of his own well in the Hamptons. Got that ankle bracelet on. Um, oh, man. Anyway. He's going to be staying at that Motel 6 that, uh, that, that the, the Motel The Motel 6 is going to be the, the lineup of the Lakers next year. Uh, KCP, Lonzo, LeBron, Paul George. LiAngelo. Yeah. Yep. All right, next one. Make or miss Cavaliers have a legitimate beef with the officiating in this series. Yeah, sure. I, I'll say it's a make because um, – that one call late in game one was Dude. crucial. And look, but it was, thing, it was it, a block though, right? Cause that's the the thing. Moving. It, like, it was the right call. So as annoying as it is that maybe they shouldn't have actually been triggered to review it mm-hmm. because that's the part the, that's... the trigger was that they were reviewing whether or not he was in the restricted area. And then once they review that, then everything comes into play. But like in real time, it did not look like he was in the restricted area. And he, even if you watch him like on the replay, he's like a good foot clear of the restricted area. So, they have a beef with whether that should have been reviewed at all, but at the end of the day, the call was the right one. And then I think there was a couple like iffy calls in game two. There was the one where LeBron caught that full court pass, and Steph and Clay I think both fouled him. Yeah. They didn't call it, and Lou takes a tech. So there's like definitely 
moments where they've got a legit beef, but I don't think I don't think poor officiating is the reason they're down two nothing. I a hundred percent agree. And I also want to say the official's job is to get the call right and they should use whatever means available to them to get the call right in any situation. So I I understand the frustration because the replay trigger was used, I think, in bad faith. Mm-hmm. I don't think anybody really realistically thought that LeBron was in the circle. So I guess you can gripe about that, but at the same time, like I'm sort of of the mind that they should actually expand like what the replay triggers are and give themselves a chance to get more calls right um, when it's like bang bang in real time. Because look, if if they hadn't triggered that replay review, if they had called it a charge, which is you know what the call on the floor was, um, and given the Cavs the ball back and the Cavs win the game on account of that call, like then suddenly the Warriors have a beef because that's the wrong call. So. It's tough to say, right? Like, I don't think that call should be seen as having swung that game because ultimately they got it right, um, as opposed to you know potentially swinging that game in the Cavs' favor because they got it wrong. So, I, I don't know that like honing in on what the refs are doing in the series is really going to get you anywhere. Yeah, that's a Jordan Clarkson size miss. <laughs> okay, next one, make or miss. Dwayne Casey is the best coach available right now Dwayne Casey obviously inspired this podcast so we're gonna be a little bit biased but come on man he just won 59 games with the Raptors uh changed the style of play um you know won the coaches award for coach of the year like it's a pretty good resume probably gonna win the real coach of the year in a few weeks yeah um he might he'll, he'll get some stiff competition from Brad Stevens I think uh but I I it's tough to say I'll call it a make because as far as just his recent track record, there's nobody else on the market that compares. But it's also tough to say because there are so many of these assistant coaches floating around that could be really good head coaches and we just don't know it yet because they haven't been given the opportunity. And I don't know. We'll see. There aren't that many vacancies left. Um, there is the Pistons job and the Raptors job. Am I forgetting anybody? Pistons, Raptors. That's it? Yeah, no. Depending on what the Cavs do. Right. Yeah. I. I so, um, yeah, two jobs left, and uh, Casey is obviously not going to be coaching the Raptors. He has been uh, reported to be basically a front runner for the Pistons job. Mm-hmm. Um, but outside of that, I mean, it's like a lot of these assistant coaches who are fighting for two jobs. Yeah. Um, and I don't know. It'll be interesting to see, like, where where they end up or you know who the Raptors decide to hire which direction the Pistons decide to go in you know they were talking to uh, Michigan's head coach John Bayline, like um, and uh, the Spurs assistant coaches are always in the conversation the Raptors assistant coaches Nick Nurse Rex Kalamian are in the conversation Jerry Stackhouse who coaches the G League uh, 905 for the Raptors in the conversation um, any of those guys could turn out to be great head coaches. We just right. haven't seen them do it yet. So yep. it's tough to say. But as far as like what we know about the coaches who are available mm-hmm. and uh, their track record and pedigree, uh, Casey has to be at the top of that list. Yeah. yeah. The Spurs assistants too, like Udoka and Tori Messina too. Right? Yeah, they yeah. interview for every single literally job. everything. James yeah. Borrego, yeah. Ime Udoka, yeah. and Tori Messina. Like <laughs> every single yeah. coaching vacancy, those guys are on the interview list. So. And then Borrego is now in Charlotte. Did Borrego get the yeah. Charlotte? Yeah, Borrego yeah. got the Charlotte job. Right, right. Um, yeah, like you said, it's impossible to know who the actual best coach is. But I look, I I think Casey Casey's earned the right to be a little selective. I think Adrian Wojnarowski reported that over the weekend as well that Casey could be selective and take the off because I think I think Casey proved himself as like an elite culture builder in Toronto. Yes, for sure. So it makes sense, like on paper, to say go to. Um, you know, somewhere like Orlando, even though, you know, it's filled now, but like right. somewhere like that where you're going to build it up. But from Dwayne Casey's perspective, you know, he's in his early 60s now. He's won yeah. a title as an assistant coach with Dallas. He's brought the Raptors to heights they've never seen before. I don't think Dwayne Casey has to settle for that. He can yeah. go and coach a ready-to-win team or a close-to-ready-to-win team. I'm fascinated by Stan Van Gundy. I still think mm. – look, I think much like I was talking about with Doc Rivers, I think Stan Van Gundy, the executive – really hurt Stan Van Gundy, the coach. But I think people forget, like, Stan Van Gundy is a damn good coach. He's a really good coach. And this coach. guy's maniacal about, like, preparing for a game, and he's so prepared for everything. Uh, strategically, just, like, usually is one step ahead of his opponents. Right. Uh, I think his offensive strategies have kind of, like, been 
they, uh, yeah. surpassed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. His yeah, a four bit. out system is just not the yeah, same. Yeah, and it was when it you know when he first did it in Orlando with Dwight Howard. Yeah, the it four was incredible. Outs, it was incredible. Yeah, so they they've dated a little bit for sure, but I'm still fascinated by seeing him end up in maybe a little more advantageous situation where he doesn't have uh, executive yeah. control because I still think as a coach he's pretty good. Maybe I, I maybe s- ends up in Toronto. Who knows? Yeah, maybe I, maybe Toronto and Detroit switch coaches. <laughs> I mean, I don't know, man. I see Van Gundy kind of the way I see Tibbs, right? In the yeah, sense that they were they were both kind of revolutionary, right? Um, and you talk about what Van Gundy did with Dwight Howard, surrounded by four shooters, that kind of four out, one in spread pick and roll system, uh, you know, and using Richard Lewis as a small ball four, basically like that, um, you know, wasn't really in vogue at the time that he was doing it, and he used that system to beat LeBron James and a 66-win Cavaliers team mm-hmm. back in 2009. Um, and then the league kind of caught up to that and he struggled to adapt, I think. And, you know, he, in the same way that Tibbs, you know, revolutionized defense, but hasn't really been able to keep up with where the league has gone from, from, you know, where those Bulls teams were at a few years ago. Um, I don't know that I've seen anything from Van Gundy that suggests that he has some like new wrinkle that, um, has made him like adaptable to the modern NBA. Yes. And I don't think that means he's a bad coach, but he's now just kind of this crotchety guy who yells a lot and sometimes yeah. butt, butts heads with star players and doesn't necessarily have this like stylistic, mm-hmm. um, you know, kind of pedigree to fall back on. Like, what what did he do in Detroit that really like unlocked something that another coach couldn't have gotten out of that roster? I'm not really sure. Like he tried to turn Andre Drummond into this post player and that worked a little bit this season and maybe Blake Griffin arriving kind of put a wrench in that a little bit because uh, I do think there, you know, there was something smart about having Drummond move up to the high post mm-hmm. and using him as a playmaker a bit more. But um, And maybe a lot of this falls on Drummond too. I just don't think that uh, Van Gundy you know, uh, pushed that roster further than you know, any other run-of-the-mill coach could have done. That's true. And he is a, he is a classic kind of old-school guy despite the fact that he did kind of change the game a little bit with the schemes. All right, last one. Um, it's not really a make or miss, but uh, just a shout-out to Doris Burke um, for getting the extension with uh, ESPN uh, to do the broadcasts. Quick question. Um, who would you have on your dream broadcast panel? So three people on the desk and one uh, interviewer. I, oh, I was going to say, uh, yeah, dream team, so you can pull from any network. I'd have Mike Breen on yeah. uh, play-by-play. I'd have I'd have DB Doris Burke and Brent Barry as okay. the analyst. I think Brent Barry as an analyst is incredible. He's like the one player who actually seems to understand what's going on. And then I'd have David Aldridge reporting because he's oh a, yeah, he's yeah, a Hall D- of Famer. D- D- solid. I like that list. Yeah, that's really tough to argue. Um, I I would probably go Harlan over Breen on play by play. I love Kevin Harlan and I love his enthusiasm for the game and his catchphrases, as corny as they can be sometimes, uh, just make watching the game delightful. And, um, yeah, Doris uh, on color commentary is fantastic. She used to actually – I don't think Dan Shulman does NBA games anymore. But, oh, yeah, he's, but, he's but great. But she and Dan Shulman uh, used to have, like, a broadcast tandem mm-hmm. that was great. Um, I love Dan Shulman, uh, whether he's doing baseball or basketball. Um, just a fantastic voice and um, always, like, really measured, mm. solid commentary. Um but yeah, uh, I think I, I wouldn't argue with Mike Breen either. Um, and Aldridge's sideline reporters is as yeah. good as it gets. So, I'm gonna show some about the Hubie. True. Hu- the Hu- the uh, I love Hubie because he shoots a high percentage from down there. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, but Hubie is like has the the best catchphrases. Like it's, it's completely unironic. Um, he doesn't know he's doing it. He's like he's just such a, like he's just an old mind that loves the game and like I think he's a really insightful guy too. Like he is. He's always the, very prepared too. Yeah. And oh yeah, yeah. No, he has all the percentages of and, if a guy is down here in this low block right here, he shoots fifty four percent. But when he moves up here, it's twenty five percent. Like it's he's got crazy the best stats. Is that Hubie always uh, prefaces those like insanely detailed stats by saying everyone knows? Yeah. And it's like nah, man, Hubie. I'm pretty <laughs> sure you're the only one that knows. It's like well, everyone no. knows that LeBron shoots. 42% from his left hand on layups on a Wednesday. Yeah. Everyone knows this, but they're not. And it's like, no, man, Hubie, really? You're the only one that knows this, man. Stop making me feel like I should know this. Dude, there was one game um, when the Raptors were playing the Cavaliers where he pulled out. 
uh, you, you love Pascal Siakam because, you know, he was the G League MVP in the finals. And I'm like, what? Nobody else knows that. Nobody in the world knows that. It's just Jerry Stackhouse, Pascal Siakam, and Bruno Caboclo, who is uh, R.I.P. Yeah, R.I.P. Anyway, we're going to take another quick break and come back uh, with a playoff flashback about Tyron Lue, weirdly enough. Welcome back to Pound the Rock. Uh, we're going to conclude the podcast with our playoff flashback. And again, we're not going far too far back in time. We're just going back to 2015. Um, Cavs were down 2-1 to the Bulls. Um, and it was a tie game. And that's when LeBron famously hit that shot out of the corner. And it's just a phenomenal shot. There was like 0.8 left on the in, in the game. Um, he somehow fades and hits it over Jimmy Butler uh, right in front of the Bulls bench. And there's a great celebration. And the Cavs end up... Um, you know, winning that series and going on to uh, lose in six games in the NBA Finals. Um, the underrated part of that game was that Tyron Lue heroically saved David Blatt because David Blatt forgot how many timeouts he had. And he almost, almost pulled a Chris Webber. I mean, he did pull a Chris Webber. It's just no official saw him. Called for timeout five times. And, um, you know, back then, Tyron Lue's stock as a coach was very, very high as compared to right now where Tyron Lue could use David Blatt right now to call a timeout. <laughs> so it's funny how life works. Um, yeah, I mean, so many crazy things about that that series, like mm-hmm. that game, that moment in time. Uh, it's LeBron's first year back in Cleveland. They're kind of on the ropes. They're down 2-1 in that series. Yeah. Uh, the game is tied and basically about to go to overtime where the Bulls, you know, will have a chance to make it a 3-1 series and, mm-hmm. and possibly eliminate that Cavs team. Um, but, you know, David Blatt, uh, first of all, you know, saved from that colossal blunder by Ty Lu, and then draws up a play in the huddle where LeBron is supposed to be the inbounder. And With 0.8 seconds left. That's yeah. insane. It's a little insane. No, it's t- very insane. All right, Come look, LeBron, LeBron's by far your best passer. And, okay. And... You know, you could argue that there were better shooters than him on the team. It's not objectively crazy, but again, like you know, I think you <laughs> you you want to win or lose the game with the ball in LeBron's hands. So LeBron justifiably takes over and scraps the play. Oh man! <laughs> and and comes out and tells people afterward mm-hmm. that he scrapped the play. Yeah. Um, you know, really throwing uh, David Blatt under the bus, not for the first or the last time. Um. And, and hits the shot to win the game. And, uh, you know, uh, they go on to win that series in six games and then sweep the 60-win Atlanta Hawks on their way to the finals. Yeah, I think what I remember is, is just, um, you know, now everyone talks about, like, the Celtics kind of giving the, the Cavs a run the last couple of years. Or people remember the Pacers giving LeBron's Heat a run for their money yeah. his last couple of years there. But I think a lot of people forget that his first year back in Cleveland – they were down 2-1. Yeah. And on the ropes in game four against Chicago. And, like, if the Bulls go up 3-1 in that mm-hmm. series, like, we very well probably get a Chicago-Atlanta East final that oh, year. Oh, that would have like, been awful. About, like, it would have been. But, seriously, <laughs> I think people forget how on the ropes LeBron's team was in this uh-huh. series. Yeah. And that's why when people talk down about his finals record, it's like the fact that he made it that right. many times. He had to go through all these moments. He had to make shots like this game-winning shot. Um, all the game-winning shots that he's hit throughout this year's playoff run. Um, but, I mean, also, it was just funny because, like, LeBron versus his head coach is always such a easy drama to pick at. Like, there was that, like, brief issue with him and um, Eric Spolster when they bumped each other. And, you know, after they won a title, it was all cool and everything. He respected Spo, whatever. But then when he came back here and the, 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 the clashes he would have with David Blatt and just the, the personality David Blatt had of being, like, very sensitive. You know, he was obviously a huge deal and rightfully so. Um, when he coached in Europe, but when he came to America, basically, or came back to America, he's American, um, and, and coached in the NBA, like, he just had such a hard time with the fact that, you know, it's different in Europe, like, it's, like, about the manager, and then the team, and then the players play for the manager, and the manager's sort of the biggest guy, whereas here in, in the U.S., like, it's like, well, you know, it's the Stars League, right, you gotta, like, you know, uh, basically, you know, kiss their behinds all the time, and he just wouldn't do that, and even in this moment, when he screwed up so colossally, his explanation was a basketball coach makes 150 to 200 critical decisions during the course of a game, something that I think is paralleled only by a fighter pilot. That was David Blatt's explanation of like, oh man, I, I almost screwed up that play. 
um, by calling timeout. Yeah, I mean... Fighter pilots. No, brain surgeons, trauma, mm. trauma room attendants. None of these people deal with the kind of decision-making that NBA coaches have to make. And, you know, in hindsight, I guess, taking that quote into consideration, it's it's understandable why Ty Lue froze up in the moment of game that's one. Saying, Yo, that's, that's Only a fighter really... pilot can tell us what Ty Lue is thinking in that moment. <laughs> yeah. Um, but look, yeah, I think... I know Blatt didn't end up getting fired until like midway through the next season, but I feel like this game is probably what cost him his job. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, because after making a mistake like that, it, it didn't end up coming back to bite him because Tyloo went out and basically tackled him mm. while he was trying to get the ref's attention and signal for a timeout they didn't have. Um, after that, and then after drawing up a play that did not involve LeBron taking the last shot <laughs> and LeBron basically flexing his muscles by scrapping the play and then hitting the shot, I just feel like... That was the point at which, you know, the team knew that it was not going to respect him after that. Yeah. Um, and I still think, you know, he is a good coach who maybe will come back and coach an NBA team again at some point in time. Uh, but I felt like at that moment, that situation uh, was irreparably broken. Mm-hmm. And which is why, you know, I, I guess it was a surprise when it happened, but it also made sense. Like they were 30 and 11 when he got fired the next year. Yeah. But it was one of those things, like this year, like, the locker room was so unhappy, they had to do something. That's what the story is with Cleveland every single year. Right. So, you know, at the time, it's like, this has never happened before. They're mm-hmm. in first place, they're 30-11 and 11 on a 60-win pace, and the head coach gets fired. Like, I just, yeah. I can't remember any other time that that's happened. And it was like I think it was like right after they they won that game in Portland where they like won it in overtime. Kyrie had like a crazy like I think he had like fifty or something, and like apparently the locker room was like really glum afterwards. Okay, and it was so and they were like, "Wow, we probably got to fire the coach." I was going to say this is I've had credentials in Toronto for three or four seasons now, and if you have credentials in Toronto, you've been in some Raptors locker rooms that are Oof. tense and glum. But I'm not even kidding when I say that the most tense and awkward I've ever felt in an NBA locker room was after a Cavs loss in Toronto in that se- early in that season when mm. Blatt ends up getting fired. And I think, like, the Cavs were still solid at the time. They had a good record. Hell, they were 30-11 and 11, they fired him. But I remember thinking, like, this is so weird, man. Like, yeah. this is a good team, probably going to get back to the finals. Oh, was that the game where uh, Kyle Lowry hit the game winner over Matthew Delvin? I think it might have been. I think it might have been, yeah. yeah. And just, just, like, the locker room after, you would have thought this was, like, a 12-40 and 40 team just playing right. with the strength. It was so weird and strange. Yeah. Fighter pilot, though. David Blatt's probably thinking to him. He's probably smirking. Every time David Blatt watches the Cavaliers, he's definitely smirking. Um, but, um, yeah. Ty Lue, again, once was very highly thought of as an assistant coach. Uh, and now is getting dragged through the mud. All right. That does it for this week's podcast. Again, a friendly reminder to please rate, review, and subscribe to the show. And uh, we'll be back with an extra podcast later this week to talk more about the NBA Finals. Thanks for listening, Brian. Thanks for listening, Brian.